Um, okay, guys, let's get started. Uh, I know that you and your small groups uh, read through our text for the week as you kind of settled into your small group time. Just to help us settle in, I'm going to read it yet again. You read it several times through the week, but um, I'm going to read just for now the first seven verses as we dig into God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So guys, tonight we are going to focus our conversation on this idea of a throne room. We are going to talk about the temple, the inner room of that temple. And one of the questions that we're going to start with is why was Isaiah so scared? Why was this such a scary scene? Or or maybe we could say after reading it, why? Why was this so intense? Right? This is such a vivid scene. Isaiah puts so many words into this, helping us to imagine what he saw when he was in the throne room of God, when he was in that temple. And one of the things I noticed is that it seems like all of his senses were engaged at this time. Everything that Isaiah saw and heard communicated to him something about God. So if we are going to be able to understand what Isaiah learned, then I think that we need to understand the history of the temple and the history of that inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And so as we're going through this, guys, I just kept seeing how intense it was. Every word that was spoken, every every cause and effect, it was just so intense. So let's, let's let that curiosity move us through Why was this so intense? What was the purpose of that? And so as we got started in our homework, looking at what we needed to learn about this part of the temple, we went back to Exodus. And I told you guys that we would be doing that a lot. And I hope those of you who studied Exodus with us in the spring really enjoyed the continuation of that. But one of the first places that we went was Exodus 19. And this is what we read. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire and the whole mountain shook violently. I think when we see that in the text and we remember Isaiah and we remember his upbringing and his original audience, we should wonder, maybe Isaiah had this image come to his mind, this image of Mount Sinai. See, it was at Mount Sinai, not long after the Exodus, that the people of God were camping at the bottom and and, uh, Moses went up the mountain and God descended on it. And it was while Moses was up there that God gave him the plan, the instructions to build the tabernacle, which would later be called the temple. So the tabernacle was the portable temple. It was the tent and, and the 
the tent system that would move around with the people of God as they moved through the wilderness. And then it would become the temple when it was permanently in Jerusalem. So Moses goes up there and God says to him, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. So we should be excited, right? We should imagine that if we're Moses or if we're the Israelites, we're thinking this is incredible. God wants to live with us. God's moving into the neighborhood. He's going to be near to his children. This is going to be amazing. Or is it? Because there they are. And we just read that the mountain shook. We just read that God descended in fire and that there is smoke, that God came down in fire, that his presence made an entire mountain shake violently. Wouldn't you ask the question, is God safe? Do I want God to come that close? Did they have more questions than excitement at this time? And so now we're going to let that be the next question that draws us through this text. What do we need to understand? What did Isaiah learn? Specifically, what did Isaiah learn about God from this vision? I'm shamelessly going to borrow the metaphor that the Bible Project guys use when they describe God's holiness. And so maybe you have seen this video or heard this metaphor. But when we're talking about God's holiness, they say it's helpful to think of the sun. And to think of the sun and how it is unique and how it is a source of life and how it is powerful and it's amazing. But at the exact same time, the sun is not safe, nor is the space around the sun safe, right? If you get too close to it, then you will be destroyed. And as we looked up definitions of holy in our homework this week, we probably put together a lot of those same words. Holiness means to be sacred. It means to be set apart to be high and lifted up, to be unique, but also to be the source of life, to be the source of everything, the origin of everything. God is more than just morally good, guys. That's not a strong enough definition for holiness. God is more than just pure. Even that is not a big enough definition of that. He is unique and he is unlike any other. And so if that is part of what Isaiah is learning in this vision, that God is holy, and that just like when he came down on Mount Sinai, that demands a a unique kind of response, we look at how this tabernacle and how this temple was designed, and it makes sense that because God was saying, I'm moving into the neighborhood, his holiness had to be almost like tucked back in the back room of this tabernacle. It had to be kept back there so that his children would be safe for safety. And we went to the story of Moses when he had his encounter with God and we saw, he saw the burning bush. He was told, take off your shoes because the place you are standing is holy ground. And so we even see that around this holy object, that area is holy. And that's why he was told to take off his shoes. So here we have this inner room, this throne room of the tabernacle. Within this throne room was something called the mercy seat. That was the throne of God sitting atop the Ark of the Covenant. What we need to understand that Isaiah would have known 
is that because God's holiness was kept, God's presence was back there and God is holy, you could not just enter into that room like it's no big deal. In fact, only the high priest could go into that holy of holies. But even that second room, the bigger room in the temple, in the tabernacle, only the priests could go there. There was only a couple items of furniture there that the priest worked with, but only they could go there, the Levites, the family of Aaron. But then if we zoom out even more, we've got the courtyard of the tabernacle in the temple. And the courtyard, only Israelites, only the children of God could enter. And even then, only with blood. You couldn't get near to God's presence without making a sacrifice on that altar. So guys, now we go to this vision of Isaiah and we need to remember that Isaiah would have known all of this just intuitively. He would have grown up in this world. So here he is and he sees this vision and he sees that he is in the throne room. He is in the temple and right away, he knows he should not be there. Sure, he's an Israelite. He's a good guy, it sounds like, but he's not a priest and he's definitely not the high priest, nor is it, do we have any idea of it being the day of atonement. Isaiah is in the Holy of Holies and he knows he should not be there. But actually, guys, there's something in recent history for Isaiah that would have maybe made him have this fear even more so because recent history would show that Uzziah, the guy we talked about last week, King Uzziah, he was faithful for so many years to lead the people of God, but he didn't end well. In 2 Chronicles, we read this really sad news about him. It tells us that when he, when Uzziah became strong, he grew arrogant and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord, his God by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. So King Uzziah did what only the priests are supposed to do. He entered into the temple and he burned incense from the altar. Guys, do you know what his consequence was from a holy God? Leprosy. God afflicted King Uzziah with leprosy. Isn't that interesting? And he had it until the day he died. In case you don't know what leprosy is, allow my inner nurse to talk about it for an excessively long amount of time. Leprosy is a bacterial infection, mostly of the skin. It creates these seeping welts all over your body, these disfiguring sores. I immediately started itching. You know, like if someone like brings up a mosquito or a tick, you know, like a talk of a tick or something, you just start itching. That's what I'm doing with leprosy right now. I feel like I have it. These disfiguring sores all over the body, on the skin, it affects the nerves, it affects the eyes, and it affects the lining of like your nose and your gums. And there was no treatment. He had leprosy until the day that he died. But should we just pause and ask a question? Should we just get in his corner for a moment and maybe uh, put words to what we're feeling? What was so wrong with what Uzziah did? Why can't we just say, hey, he had a good heart. He had good intentions. Why can't we just say that, you know, worship is worship. He was coming in to worship the Lord, his God. Why would we bog down worship with all these rules? But it's like God is saying, to this king. Oh, buddy, you underestimate 
your sin problem. You see yourself as clean enough. You see yourself as good enough. Or maybe, maybe what it was is, hey, Uzziah, you don't see me, God, as high enough. You don't see me as high and lifted up. You kind of maybe see us as almost equals. Maybe the problem is that King Uzziah actually thought that he was a lot like God, being the king during a prosperous time. And so God is going to make it emphatically clear to Uzziah that he is unclean because leprosy was a disease that according to Levitical law made you unclean, made you ritually unclean. Guys, God was going to make it so clear to him that he wasn't as clean as he thought by giving him a disease where he had to quarantine the rest of his life. From that time on, he had to live alone in, his, in a house and his son had to start acting as king for him. Isaiah would know this story. No wonder he's terrified. No wonder Isaiah is scared. He knows he's not supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. And furthermore, he's got this recent story going on in his mind that Uzziah has died with a disease that God gave him. And here he is in the throne room, just like Uzziah was. Well, what else did we learn from this intense, from this vivid scene? What else did Isaiah see? What else did he hear? Let's just go through them really quickly. So it's right away, it says that I saw the Lord seated on the throne. So right away, he's connecting that God is king that he is sitting and that he is ruling. We read that he is high and lifted up. So guys, it's not just that God is king. It's not just that he's sitting, sitting on a throne, but it's that he is above and beyond man. He is above and beyond all other kings, that he is supreme. And we read that the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's not just that he's royal, but the scene is majestic. We're supposed to see God in his splendor. Guys, what Isaiah saw was probably breathtaking. Think of like the biggest trains that you've seen in, in a wedding where that train just fills the aisle behind the bride. This train of his robe filled the temple. And if that wasn't enough, guys, if that wasn't enough to kind of make him feel emotions, to make him a bit scared, how about the seraphim? So what did we read about them? That they had six wings. With two of them, they flew. Okay, do you agree with me? Bugs can be scary, but how much more so when they have wings and they start flying? So bugs are fine if they just stay on the ground or whatever, right? But if you don't know that that thing has wings and all of a sudden out comes wings and it's flying all over, we've got a whole nother level of nasty, a whole nother level of scary, right? That's what I would think about if I was Isaiah. All of a sudden, these things are flying and I am more scared than I otherwise would be. What else did we read about them? With two, they flew. With two, they covered their eyes. And with two, they covered their feet. And in our homework, we said, why do you think? Why do you think that they covered their face? Well, when do we go like this? When something is bright when we have to shade our eyes from something. You wanna hear the coolest little play on words? The root of seraphim means bright ones. They are called the bright ones. 
Yet, the brightness of God and his glory is so great that the bright ones are going like this. They cannot look directly at his glory. And with two wings, they are covering their feet as a sign of humility, as a sign of showing that even though they are celestial beings, God, the king, is high and lifted up. And what does he hear? Holy, holy, holy. He is the holiest of the holies that were ever holy. And the glory of God, it does not just fill the holy of holies rooms. It does not just fill the temple. It does not just fill Judah or Israel, but the whole earth. Going back to our original definition of holiness, that he is the source and the origin of life. Did you guys notice that that word filled or full is mentioned three times? Just like holy, the word holy is mentioned three times, we are supposed to catch the weight of this, the glory of this, guys, that almost the heaviness of it, that God is three times holy and he is revealing that to his prophet. This is an intense scene, a lab really on the holiness of God three times mentioned the complete way of defining how holy God is. So I don't think we need to ask why is he afraid anymore? So then let's move on. In this moment of fear, let's ask the question, what does Isaiah need? Right? He's here and he's scared and he's upset. His response is, woe is me for I am unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He's having a bad moment. He says, I am ruined. He's feeling down on himself. He's in despair. He's in fear. What does he need? Does he need more self-esteem at this moment? Does he need to be kind of propped up a little bit, right? someone to lift his chin, someone to cup his face, say, Isaiah, you're great. You're gonna do great things. You're gonna change the world, man. Does he need someone to sit down and go through his Enneagram with him and tell him all the ways that he's in growth right now and that he's gonna just kill it as a prophet? Is that what he needs to be puffed, puffed up? No. So in this moment of fear, what does he need? Does he need... Security, safety. Does he need a plan? Does he need to be told in this moment that there's nothing to be afraid of? It'll all work out. No. But we're not machines, so let's not just plow through this and act like those are stupid options. Because most days, those are the things that I want. Most of the time, often, when I encounter God, when I approach God, those are the exact things that I am seeking, guys. I do want something to prop up my self-esteem most days. A little bit of criticism, a funny look from one of you, and I'm melting, right? Like, oh my goodness. And what do I want from the Lord? I want him to prop up my self-esteem and tell me flattery, essentially. So often I just want a, like a hit of the feel goods. 
I want assurance that my family and I will be safe. I want to know that our future is secure and that my expectations are going to be met. I want a plan. But is that what I need? Is that what Isaiah needed? Let's keep reading. But actually, let's go into like slow motion to make sure that we're getting this story and that we're enjoying the narrative while we have it, guys. So in slow motion, imagine that you were there, that you are Isaiah and actually feel the tension of this next scene. The seraph, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The six-winged seraphim flies to you. And it is holding a coal from the altar. The CSB even says it's a glowing coal. And it's coming for you, guys, and you start to smell it. And then you start to hear the sizzling of this glowing coal and it's coming right for your mouth. And as it gets closer, you start to feel the heat from it as it approaches your face. And if Isaiah was not scared before this moment, he's scared now. He's terrified. And I think it is good for us to slow down in this moment and think about how this actually can just get boots on the ground, hit us in life right now, guys. Because this is when I wonder, how often do we think that when a hardship comes, when difficulty comes, it is going to destroy us. When something painful comes, we think that we are going to be destroyed, so to speak, in one way or another. And maybe not fully, guys. Maybe, maybe the big dramatic phrase actually is a miss for you. But don't we often think something painful has come my way. God has allowed something uncomfortable to come my way. And I misinterpret in that moment and think, woe is me. I'm ruined. It's over. God has allowed this conflict to come into my life. I have let this person down. There's a fight, there's sides taking shape. There's this disunity. And in that moment, I think, woe is me. My reputation is ruined. Or maybe God has allowed or even ordained that my health struggle for a bit that my body's not functioning like it used to, or I'm fighting some kind of disease, or I'm fighting with some kind of mental health issue. And as I see that coming, or as I'm experiencing that discomfort, maybe I think, or maybe you think, I can't make it through this. This will take me down. This will destroy me. Maybe it's a season of unmet expectations in your marriage. Maybe you're barely healing from the last relational hurt and you get disappointed again by the person that you're married to. And you think, I'm not going to make it through this one. Woe is me. I'm ruined. 
without belittling these hardships and the sufferings that are in this room, guys. Without belittling them at all. Could we look at this and say that so often what we think can destroy us is actually here to purify us and to change us like it did Isaiah. Have you been there? Have you been in that intense season similar to Isaiah's vision? Maybe you would go so far as to even say that you have felt burned by God. Burned by the church. Or burned by another Christian. And I am sorry for you. I am sorry if that is your season right now. And not with any tough girl language or any machine language do I say this. But ladies, what if what we took from this scene was this opportunity to believe that what would otherwise destroy us can actually be for our good, can purify us, and can change us. Because that's what we see happens to Isaiah. He more than likely thought that he was not going to survive in this vision, that he was not going to survive being in the throne room or being seared by a hot coal. We ask the question, what purpose does that coal serve? Was it to destroy him? Was it to burn him? Or was it to make him holy? The seraphim says, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. We took our first jab at trying to get the definition of atonement this week. And our group laughed at it because actually Google sucks at giving us a definition for atonement. And I think we should actually enjoy that. I think it's such a rich idea that we are going to find our definition from from the Bible throughout this study. But it has this idea of a covering being made, of of a, a penalty being appeased by a covering. Isaiah is told that his sin has been, his iniquity has been removed and his sin has been atoned for. Guys, what Isaiah needed was atonement. That's what he needed so that he could be in God's presence. That's what he needed. That's what his, the people of Israel needed. It's what you and I need so that we can be close to God. A covering for our sin, a way to be made pure. And so right away, again, we, we jump down from kind of this lofty, big word in the thick of the Old Testament, and we find actually that it's rich in application. Because we need to pause right here and say, do we actually believe this? I mean, it sounds churchy. It sounds good. It's a big word, so we feel like we should agree with it. But really, do we believe that this is what we need in a moment of fear? Can we believe that whatever hardship is going on in our life, the ways that maybe we feel like we've been burned, if you will, are not here to destroy us, but to grow us and to purify us. So if we just left it there and I'm like, guys, just believe it. Okay, bye. We we would maybe still feel like, okay, yeah, I do. I, I want to. But even then, isn't that kind of just left in the clouds? Okay, just believe, just have more faith. 
Just believe that God brings good out of, out of hard things. But I actually do think that we have some help in how we can get there. How can we get to the point to believe this thing? Um, one of my favorite Christian counselors that writes a bunch of books, is, his name is Ed Welch. And he says, fight fear with fear. Let's talk about this. Fight fear with fear. So ladies, whatever, what is it in your life that has brought fear? What circumstance in your life has been bringing fear uh, into, into your heart, into your mind, bringing anxiety? Whatever that is that is bringing up that fear, guys, we defeat it by fearing the Lord. It, it seems like a paradox. It doesn't seem to make sense, guys, but we overcome our fears by being in awe of God. I think that that's what's going on in this vision. We overcome our fears by seeing God in his holiness, by seeing him in his splendor, and by worshiping him. So what we need when we are afraid of losing control, when we are afraid of loss, when we are afraid of being unlovable, when we are afraid of condemnation or uncertainties, what we need is a bigger and more expansive view of God, a more accurate view of God. And I think we get it from seeing what Isaiah saw. We see him as king we see him as a king who is high and lifted up, who is so far above us, where we say there is none like him. And we don't see him as a God with limited power and limited abilities, but we see him as a God of no limits. We see him as a God of great power who is mighty to save. And from that bigger, more expansive, more accurate view of him, we find the ability to overcome our fears. And guys, from this vision, Isaiah's gonna take what he experienced here and it's going to inform all of his theology for the rest of the book. So what we see here, guys, is that Isaiah's people, the Israelites, the people of Judah, of that Southern kingdom, they could have responded like Isaiah. They could, when, when the Holy God revealed himself to them, guys, they could have humbled themselves like he did, but they don't. And that's what we saw just at the end of this week. They don't bend a knee. Instead, they stiffen against him. So when we see Ahaz, who would be the grandson of King Uzziah, he's invited to trust in the Lord in a time of fear, but instead he doesn't. He doesn't lean into the Lord. He stiff arms him and instead leans into the superpower that he can see, which was Assyria at that time. And he trusts in them. And we saw what the consequences are of that lack of trust in him, guys. We saw three, we filled in three of the blanks. We saw that because the people of God failed to trust in God, that the cities were going to be emptied. The land was going to be barren. The houses were going to be desolate. Can you picture that scene, guys? Picture like, like a war zone after everyone has left. The city is desolate, barren, and emptied. Do you hear even how it contrasts with the three times fullness of the temple of God? The perfect, complete glory of God in the throne room contrasts greatly with the mess that sin made. 
emptiness. And it sounds so hopeless. And did you notice the contrast between Isaiah and Uzziah? Right, when Isaiah has a revelation of God, when when he encounters God, he's humble. And we see it because he acknowledges his uncleanliness. Contrast that with Uzziah, who did not acknowledge his uncleanliness, but just assumed that he was good enough. Look for these contrasts, look for these details and enjoy them. And then look for the ways that it points forward. Look for how this summit of this vision points to a future chapter in God's big story. Guys, think about in Isaiah's vision, here we have the glory of God and it's gonna bust out of the temple scenes. It's gonna bust off of the page in this summit, God's glory is revealed when God rescues a sinful man. We have the full temple. We have the shaking, we have the smoke, we have the the robe, we have the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. And then what happens, guys? He comes to man. And so from there, we kind of caught our breath as we found ourselves in the New Testament. We kind of got our bearings as we looked at Mark chapter five, the story of the bleeding woman. Guys, think about this. This woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, had been under the hand of doctors and likely surgeons and only got worse with time. Here we have this bleeding woman who ironically, like a leper, was ceremonially unclean. She was considered unclean according to the Levitical law because When a woman even just had her period, she was considered unclean for that time and wasn't supposed to be around people. Here we have a woman who is chronically bleeding for 12 years. Anyone who touched her was made unclean. And this was what she had been living with for over a decade. Guys, she knows she's unclean. She's likely not just felt pain from her disease, but she would have felt fear. She would have felt exhaustion, but maybe even unworthiness, loneliness, I would think, isolation. But for reasons that we can only joyfully speculate, here she is in this crowd surrounding Jesus, breaking all the rules, going out among the people, pressing through the crowds, bumping up against people in her unclean state so that she can get close enough to touch Jesus. But not even touch him. But what does she touch that maybe reminded us of Isaiah's vision? Just the hem of his clothes, like the train of his robe. And instantly when she touches it, she is healed. She feels the bleeding stop. She notices that she has been changed in this moment, that she has been healed. And so we ask, do you see any similarities in these stories, guys? When this woman drew near to Jesus, who exactly was she drawing near to that connects us with Isaiah's vision? She was drawing near to the embodiment of God's glory. She was drawing near to Jesus, who is described as tabernacling 
tabernacling with the people. Guys, that tabernacle, that temple was just a big arrow pointing to Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh, God saying, I'm moving into the neighborhood. So it is like this woman is approaching the temple, looking to be made clean. And she finds Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, who has come to be near to his people. She was actually drawn to the very place of atonement where uncleanliness and death were dealt with. And Jesus draws her out and pulls out her faith. And in that moment, her greatest need is met. Her greatest need is met in that her uncleanliness was dealt with. And it had much more, it had to do with much more than just her sickness. He was dealing with her uncleanliness as he invited her to live by faith and put her trust in him. And as we saw in the homework, it was like turning the whole like Old Testament sacrificial system on its head because just like we saw as the altar came and purified Isaiah, Jesus, the holiness comes from Jesus and moves to her rather than him being made unclean. It's, it's turning everything that they'd ever known on its head. But even in this moment, in this beautiful story that maybe we can relate with in so many ways, guys, even this was an arrow to yet another summit in God's story. Because actually the very summit of God's glory, we would find Jesus dressed in a purple robe of mockery. In this moment of God being glorified, we find Jesus crowned like a king with a twisted crown of thorns and being extolled by his mockers who say, Hail, King of the Jews, as they lift him high up on a cross. In his moment of death, the light of the world breathed his last and the sky went dark and the foundations of Jerusalem shook. And then the curtain of the temple that separated the holy of the holies was torn from top to bottom as if done by the hand of God. The atonement that God provided for Isaiah from the altar became a reality in the sacrifice and the death of Jesus. And so now we can draw near to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Because our greatest need and our greatest joy is the nearness of God. And because Jesus provided the atonement, it is now possible. So what did Isaiah need in this moment? What was his greatest need? Not comfort, not a pep talk, not compliments and not even assurances, guys. 
He needed atonement. But he also needed a sense of awe. And I think that those are our applications for this week. Depending on where you are with Jesus, maybe you still need atonement. Maybe you still need to be made clean by Jesus' holiness, which he joyfully shares with us. Maybe you need to identify with Uzziah and acknowledge that you're not good enough, but that God is so high and lifted up and so unlike us that you need that holy God to come to you and provide for you. And all of us receive the invitation to have a sense of awe before God. If you are a churchgoer, if you are decades into church, it could happen even weeks into church, we are at risk for losing our awe. We are at risk for thinking that we, ha- we know what we need to know about God, that we have beheld the view that there is to behold. And ladies, it's not true. He is bigger. He is higher. He is more beautiful. He is more powerful. He is more complex, more mysterious, and yet more able to be known than we can comprehend. And so let's lift our gaze and behold our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for a refreshed view of you. Lord, we acknowledge that anything good that happens in us starts with you revealing yourself to us, just like you did to Isaiah. And Lord, we want to respond with repentance. We want to respond with humility and with awe as you come and you meet our greatest needs, fixing the mess that sin has made in our life. But then after that, Lord, giving us the faith to believe that you are good and powerful and working in our lives. So Lord, when pain comes, when we are afraid, when we are burned, Lord, would you help us to believe that you can bring good from it, that you are making us holy. Would you help us to believe it, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.